Scott Belsky founded Behance in 2006. Behance is a social platform where designers and creators share their work. Scott was motivated to create Behance due to his desire to combine his love for creativity with his desire to start a business. After six years of work, Behance was acquired by Adobe for more than $150 million. Today, Scott works as a chief product officer at Adobe. Behance's journey from idea to acquisition is chronicled by Scott in his book, The Messy Middle. His book chronicles the difficult, winding journey that an entrepreneur must take in order to succeed, and it contains some harrowing stories. Scott has a gritty personality, which was required to endure the ups and downs of Behance. Scott joins the show to discuss the story of Behance and the lessons of his life as an entrepreneur. We are hiring a head of growth. If you like Software Engineering Daily and consider yourself competent or excellent in sales and marketing and strategy, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Scott Belsky, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. Your book, The Messy Middle, is about making it through the middle of a project. And this book is partly a memoir. It's partly a strategy book. When you were writing The Messy Middle, how did you strike the right balance between those two formats? Well, I think that in order for people to really relate to information, stories always help. And I tried to capture as many stories from other founders that I had worked with, boards that I had been on, and issues and situations that I had gone through to make some of these insights come alive. The other thing I was trying to emulate with the book was the tendency among a lot of leaders that I know and have worked with to have quick 15-minute conversations with each other to just get some different perspective and some actionable advice when they're facing a particular challenge. That is how I feel like a lot of great leaders operate because at the end of the day, they don't have time to spend all day thinking about something or read tons of books or get, you know, they just have to make decisions. And those quick 10, 15 minute conversations are typically enriched with a piece of advice, a story to back it up, some practical and maybe counterintuitive tips to take with you. And I just wanted to have a journey guide for every leader of any bold project with hundreds of those. And that's what the messy middle became. You founded Behance. Describe the middle of Behance. Yeah, the middle of Behance was characteristically messy. Behance was bootstrapped for five years, venture-backed for two years. It started in 2006 or so. And so we went through 2008, which was a very difficult time in the economy. We had a few years where we had to rewrite our entire platform, re-architect things over and over again. There were a lot of periods of sideways motion in the journey of Behance. And in, in retrospect, made us into the team we needed to be but at the time just felt like wasted energy. And the funny thing is that whenever anyone asks me about Behance, it's like, oh yeah, founded this company with this bold mission, organized the creative world, bootstrapped for five years, venture after two years, acquired by Adobe in 2012, you know, then became this, then became that. And it's like in, in, in a few sentences, it seems like this pithy story, but it's, it says nothing about the actual endurance and optimization that had to occur to keep us alive. Indeed. Speaking of endurance, you had to 
rebuild Behance's technology three times? Yeah. <laughs> I always prescribe to this idea of hiring people based on their initiative as opposed to their experience. And I actually feel like if we hired very experienced engineers who had built stacks like we had to build to scale Behance as a product, I don't know if those folks would have ever joined us or stuck around long enough for us to figure it out. Instead, we hired people who were extremely smart, smart, but just didn't have a lot of experience doing what we were doing. And those folks were very, but they had an incredible initiative and in learning. The consequence of that strategy is that you oftentimes have to build things again. And it happened a number of times where we, <laughs> we had like a proof of concept of Behance. It was live and up and running. And then we realized, oh my goodness, this is not scalable. This is not secure. This is not a foundation we can build upon for the roadmap we envision down the road. And that resulted in major steps back and otherwise sideways to rectify. So those lessons learned the hard way were very enriching for our team and brought us together you know, as a, as a culture. But oh my goodness, you know, was it messy. You founded Behance in 2005. In many ways, starting a company has become much easier. A lot of the low-hanging fruit is getting picked, but the tools are getting better and new platforms, new opportunities are opening up. Is it easier or harder to start a company today? I think it's a lot easier to start a business today. A lot of the necessities of a business are now available for one low monthly fee as SaaS products. You no longer have the barriers to entry of having servers and having customer service products you have to build internally. And I mean, anything you would have had to build internally to get up and running before is essentially available as an API and you can piece, piece your business together. Now, that being said, the flip side of that is that there are too many businesses starting in every category. Everything is extraordinarily competitive. The consumer has tons of noise for every decision that they make. And the large platforms have made it extraordinarily hard to reach new customers. You have to pay a lot of money to reach new customers. That is where if you don't have to spend money on building your own servers and whatever else, you have to spend money on acquiring new customers now. So there's a, there's a flip side to that. But for entrepreneurship and innovation, it's wonderful because anyone can have something in their mind's eye and essentially get something up and running easier than ever before. It's clear that you're driven by creative energy. And that comes out in the book. You need creative energy to succeed in a business, but you also need ruthless discipline. Was it harder for you to develop the creative side or the discipline side? I value both. And my mantra has always been to be extraordinarily optimistic about the future, which really fuels creativity and innovation, but also be extraordinarily pessimistic about the present and paranoid about the present. I think that those are the energy wells that I feed off of in everything that I do. And every meeting, I try to end with that tone. Oh my goodness, look at what we are positioned to do. Look how amazing this opportunity is. Look how great our ideas are, but also, whoa, like we are behind, you know, we are not making enough progress. There are competitors at our heels. And I'm not sure, you know, that we are executing the tasks fast enough to be able to pursue this opportunity. And I think that sort of message 
is what enables a team to do great things. Now, I think a lot of leaders are only one or the other, and I don't think that works. Entrepreneurship can be very fun and validating, and it's become easier, as you said. And for many people, this can be such a more gratifying path than toiling away at a job that they're unhappy with. But evangelism of entrepreneurship can backfire because sometimes people will respond negatively to that evangelism because it can be so discordant with how they are living their lives. What's the best way to evangelize entrepreneurship? Well, I like to boil things down, you know, to primary elements when it comes to, you know, words like entrepreneurship. What does it mean? It means means having ideas and acting upon them. It means finding better ways of doing old things and also new things that people never knew they wanted to do. It means to me more, more than having a passion for a problem to solve. It means empathy with the people suffering the problem. And I do think that there's too much entrepreneurship for the sake of it. If you, if you just want to be independent and have no constraints and no people you're responsible to, don't be an entrepreneur. <laughs> Starting and leading a team is all about being responsible to your team, responsible to your customers, responsible to your board. I mean, you have more bosses than you may have ever had. It's not an individual sport either. So I think that that's sort of there's a misnomer of what entrepreneurship actually ends up meaning. I think that people need to just center themselves on 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 the problem they're trying to solve and and, and the empathy with those suffering, and then. If this pursuit brings you to have to build something new as opposed to joining another team solving it, then that's you know that's a consequence of what has to happen. If I gave you two years today to build a successful business, you have two free extra years attached to your life, what would you start and what would the domain be? I think I'd probably challenge myself to do something very different and out of my comfort zone. Like, for example, build a toy company. And I think that toys really had a hard time bridging the divide between the physical and the digital. They're either physical or digital. A lot of the old school physical toy companies don't get digital and vice versa. I also think that there's things that kids would benefit from, like being, you know, connecting with others and social networking and everything else that inherently will not work in the tradition and the paradigm we think about them today because no one wants their children's identity online. No one wants them to be sharing personal information about themselves with others. Sometimes I think, wow, could there be an entirely you know, different approach to a hybrid physical digital toy-like experience for kids you know, that could really enrich their development and be fun and do something that completely out of my zone. So I think to answer your question, two years, I would force myself to not do two more years of anything I've ever done before, but rather scratch another itch and, and, and try to empathize with a different type of customer. You've seen Adobe make the shift to a modern SaaS company. And it reminds me of, there's an interview that we did with Intuit. And I think Intuit is kind of, I don't know the timeline actually of the two companies, I don't have it in front of me, but it seems like they're kind of in the same vintage. And that evolution was really interesting. What lessons have you taken away from seeing how Adobe has successfully matured into a SaaS company? Well, it's, it, it's been, this has been another major journey that's been an honor to be a part of. 
it's amazing to, uh, it's one thing to build a SaaS business, but to turn a business that was a perpetual downloaded software business or boxed software business into a real, you know, true enterprise grade SaaS offering. You know, it's it, maybe the easiest part was making the business model transformation, although that was very hard. But to get the product teams to think differently about how we deliver value on a daily basis and weekly basis, as opposed to every 18 months when we launch a new version with new features, to, to build a new type of relationship with the customer that requires an entirely new go-to-market strategy and different messaging and uh, different tactics. I mean, that's that's been a multi-year journey that we're still undergoing, I think, as a company. And one of the things that I'm thinking about is if the future of creative tools are collaborative, are cloud-based, work across devices, are enriched with services that allow you to do things you can't even do on your on your own device, you know, that is a true SaaS, you know, creative offering that we haven't fully delivered on yet. And, you know, and, and there's more coming in, in a few months and then there's more coming next year. But it's, uh, it's getting the teams to think and act differently, to function, to have different operating models of working together. I mean, if you think about the world of box software, every tub had its own bottom and you know, every team worked on their own. And then as long as they delivered on the same date, they were fine. Now it's the opposite. Everyone has to have a really focus on consistency of user experience, shared services that they're leveraging. We have shared technology teams that are building services that everyone needs. So of course, this API first with documentation mantra is now very important to us. Again, these are some of the internal mechanics that are completely different from the way the company was prior. These mature software companies are such a different animal than any kind of mature business we've seen in the past. As far as I can tell, you know, when you look, when you think about Microsoft plus GitHub plus LinkedIn, if you were a startup founder and you had access to those distribution channels and those resources, you could do so much. But trying to to marshal those resources in the correct way as a large organization is a totally different problem. Can you contrast the management challenges of building Behance, which you talked about in great detail in the messy middle, with the management challenges you have at Adobe? They're vastly different in the sense that, you know, of course, you know, Adobe is a 20,000 plus person organization. You know, for me, my job is all about, it's a fight for alignment. I'm trying to get more and more people aligned. And in a small organization like Behance, it was very easy because we were all in ambient vicinity. Everyone heard everything. And I was able to hire every single person and interview them myself. And so it's easier to optimize for alignment. When you have a very big organization, the most frequent way of solving misalignment, where you have different teams with different backgrounds and different expertise and different ways of looking at the world, is imposing process. So checkpoints, processes for the concept alignment, processes for the project plan commits and and, end-to-end reviews and everything else. But then you quickly learn that the more process you throw at the problem, the less engaged people become and the slower the organization moves. And so then the question is, well, how do you optimize for alignment in a huge organization without relying solely on process? And that is where leadership and, to me, design comes in. It's this amazing thing that when you get an amazing high-fidelity prototype 
and you get all the right people in the room, a prototype is worth a thousand meetings. So one of the things I've done is I've empowered designers to really get up front and center in the in the product experience or the product building experience so that we can have those prototypes sooner to force alignment across all the right people way upstream. Another thing that I've done is I've spent a lot of time going around and trying to tell stories and articulate the vision for everyone. It's a lot of repeating myself. Uh, some people would get tired of doing that, but I think a big part of my job is to just get folks aligned because what I have found is that when they are, magic happens. Even in a large organization, we defy all expectations. Um, it's just extraordinarily hard to achieve. The online creative economy is showing so much promise, and you predicted this when you were working on Behance. The world in which Behance grew up looks so so much less creative than than today's internet, where you have you know Patreon and YouTube and podcasts are blowing up, and you have Fiverr and. You know, I don't know if you saw, but but Spotify just acquired a company called Sound Better, which is like a, a musician marketplace, which is a really interesting uh, a concept of a distribution of a large distribution channel acquiring a marketplace. Do you have any predictions for what these new platforms will give birth to? Mar- and, and predictions for marketplaces, like platforms that are marketplaces. Well, I just mean generally speaking. I mean, this is a this is a very new creative economy we're living in. Yeah, I think we'll see a few different things. Uh, first of all, I think we'll see a new breed of marketplaces that don't just rake a fifteen to thirty percent take of everything that happens, but have a different business model. I've seen some that are blockchain kind of token driven, where stewards of the marketplace, artists and others that are selling their talents can also accumulate tokens for doing other things that contribute to the health of the marketplace and that those tokens go up in value over time and that that's actually the monetization path for the people who are building the marketplace. So I think we'll see new structures that evolve this 15 to 30% take to a different direction. I think the statistic is that 40% of the American workforce by the end of 2020 will be independent professionals. And so these are all people who are constantly trying to get new customers. They use a lot of, whether they're massage therapists or trainers, or I mean, any sort of person who's in the services space, even a web developer, even a designer. Yes, there's lots of ways for them to acquire customers by marketing themselves. But if you ask any of them, the number one channel of their best new customers or clients, they'll say it's referral. And referral is very inefficient. You know, it's all circumstantial. You happen to have, you have to be with the person or think of the right person to ask and get a referral at the right time to get to, you know, to actually make magic there. And, and so I think that there will be also a new breed of platform that is driving referrals in new ways. And that's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And I also think that we'll see platforms of labor evolve in such a way where they're not lowest common denominator, kind of letting the lowest bid win but actually act as a form of price protection for talent. I think right now, if you go to Upwork or a lot of these others, what you'll find is that people from around the world are underbidding projects. And then people typically end up getting what they're paid for, what they're paying for. 
And you've seen this in extreme ways in spec work and crowdsourced design websites where people are paid nothing to do work and they're only paid if, if, if the client uses the work. And that is just a really bad trend for everyone because the work just gets crappier and people don't make a living. So I, I actually think we're going to see some higher end platforms for work emerge that are, you know, that really allow people to have very successful, productive careers. Are there any tropes about incentive alignment that you, that you disagree with? So for example, when people talk about hiring contractors, that's often a, a trope that it's it's pretty dangerous to do in the early days of a startup because their incentives aren't necessarily aligned with yours. But you could do something like give them a little bit of equity, but and, and then also if they're if they're working on a platform like Fiverr, they're going to get a star rating, right? So like, and that star rating is kind of their lifeblood of, you know, not exactly referrals, but being surfaced. Any any tropes about incentive alignment in this new online economy that, that you might question? I think it's a great question. Reputation obviously is everything for a lot of these, a lot of these folks. I, I think one thing to think about though, and it kind of goes back to my referral question is why, why is it that we trust a friend's take on something or someone that they've worked with more than whatever a thousand random people on Yelp vote based on their average star ratings. You know, why does a why does a trusted testimonial from a friend get more real estate in our brain than a 4.5 star you know rating from a million people? There's something about there's this person very like human tendency of ours to trust people we know. And why haven't modern networks and platforms evolved to really let us tune into everything that our friends and trusted colleagues and people that have credibility think. You know, if I want to go to a restaurant, do I want to know the ratings from random people who go to that restaurant? Or do I want to know the ratings from 50 of the best restaurant curators who really know what to look for in all the right departments? So this blend of, and this has been an age-old question of curation versus meritocracy, allowing, taking the people out of it or pushing the people into it. You know, my vote is that ultimately people want human and human in, input and curated experiences, especially in this age of AI and 4.5 stars. You know, there's going to be a, I think there's going to be a raging comeback in that regard. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. She was telling me about an idea for turning blog posts into podcasts, which is an idea that we've we've seen before. You know, you and and as text to speech gets better, yeah, okay, we can have more of this, but I don't think people are actually looking for, I mean, they are looking for the content, but they're looking for the content merged with the human inflections. And so there is this necessity of both the human and the technological element. Now, of course, I bet you're seeing this in the Adobe product evolution. There are all these opportunities to use AI to sand the edges of products and, and and the things that you make and allow the human to work more quickly and more efficiently. What are your any any recent updated perspectives on human computer interaction given what you're seeing at Adobe? Yeah, I think about this a lot because we have a number of efforts in artificial intelligence and people often ask, well, how is that going to interact with creativity? What's it going to do? Actually, I think it's going to make us more creative. And the reason is, is because if you look at the way anyone uses Photoshop, for example, 40 to 50% of their time in Photoshop is doing re repeated, mundane, annoying, kind of over and over type of 
tasks that are not creative at all? And why isn't the tool detecting that as you try to mask someone's hair within in ridiculous amounts of detail that you're doing that and then just do it for you? If you've done five steps and we know in 99% likelihood you're about to do the next seven steps, why don't we just jump you ahead? Why can't the productivity side of our lives become automated so that we can spend more time on the creativity side, which is thinking about things in new ways, following through on mistakes of the eye to discover entirely new ways of doing things, you know, being, being human. And so what if that is actually the ultimate trend that we're missing? that AI will basically make creativity the new productivity. You know, all of the things that we used to invest in people to do over centuries to essentially optimize for productivity will now be automated and done by robots, et cetera, freeing people up to do things that are more creative. And what are the implications of this? You know, how do we have to educate our children? What kinds of skills do we need to develop to succeed in the workplace? What kinds of tools? needed to be deployed. We used to deploy productivity tools enterprise-wide, like Microsoft Office, et cetera, Excel. You know, now do we need to deploy creative tools enterprise-wide so that anyone can visually express their ideas, can communicate in compelling ways, can, can show data in new and creative ways? You know, that, that's something I think about a lot that I don't think gets enough airtime. Now, you've kind of mentioned that in a few different ways. First, talking about the it was what you just said, the idea that people in a large organization need a way to communicate their ideas. And, and, and then earlier, you, you kind of alluded to this fact that it's better to show than to tell, probably especially at a, at a design-oriented company like Adobe, where there's tons of designers working internally, and you could just empower them to show their ideas. Amazon has this thing called the six-pager, right, where you write six pages of your idea. That's a very old style, you know, that's a technology that's been around for a little bit longer than, you know, AI-driven design tools. Is there a tension there between the fact that, yeah, it would be great, better to show than to tell, but, you know, one of the most successful companies in the world prefers to tell? Yeah, it's a good question. I just think that humans are generally visual I don't know. I mean, I, I've always considered design to be in some ways the cheat code of business and product. It's amazing to me the impact of having an amazing designer as a partner. I just find that it drives a level of alignment and iteration and all of the other special things that make a big difference in the outcomes, you know, more so than almost any other investment I could possibly make. So I guess I just come with come to it for that strong bias. Why did PowerPoint get so abused in organizations? Well, it's the only, in some ways, it was the only visual communication tool we were ever given. And the abuse of PowerPoint to me is representative of the beginning of the trend I just described. It's everyone realizing in order to get people aligned in an organization, you needed to show rather than tell. But they didn't have the training or the right tools to do so. I mean, PowerPoint is just not a creative tool, in my view. It's a communications tool that is sort of optimized more for productivity than creativity. People are adhering to templates by default. You're, the focal point is more on the text and the telling as opposed to the showing. And also, it's not, a, it's not a tool that allows you to follow along and iterate over time around these ideas. I mean, every PowerPoint is essentially a static document 
which is wild. I mean, what, think about any PowerPoint slide you see has information on it that is not only subject to change, but should change over the course of a project, whether they are the metrics or how we are compared to the KPIs we set out for ourselves, or what's the mission of the project and how that evolves, or what's the go-to-market strategy and how that evolves as we try and iterate. I mean, all of those slides are essentially focal points that we should all be following and tracking the changes of throughout a project, but nothing that I just described is possible now. And I think it's a sort of a disservice to what the enterprise needs tomorrow to, to be more creative. There has been a lot of literature about startups that has been created in the last several years. A lot of it has to do with the rise of Y Combinator and the democratization of this knowledge. And you have your own take on a lot of these different kind of uh, pieces of wisdom that have become commonly accepted practices in startups. And then you have your own fresh, completely fresh ideas in the messy middle. Is there anything from the world of contemporary startup wisdom that you disagree with? Oh, goodness. I mean, quite a bit of it, probably. But I think, I mean, listen, these are, (laughs) it's funny, like, I call these healthy tensions. And the reason I use that term is because there is no really like right answer. And in fact, the process of managing the healthy tension is what gives you the answer. I mean, I talked about alignment versus process, for example, you know, and how it's not just process, but it's also getting more alignment to solve this problem that every organization has. I mean, polish versus the MVP is another classic one. Everyone says you should get the MVP out there and then iterate. The problem with that is that whatever you, whatever you put out there first becomes in some ways like the local maximum. And it's extraordinarily hard to realize that another area of terrain is even, you know, is even higher and you should climb in a completely different space. So the decisions that you make into that MVP actually matter more than you realize. And this pithy, oh, like just launch and iterate thing doesn't really always work out if you have a few of the wrong assumptions. I also think that you should always polish the part that is most distinctive to your product. If you're going to be known for one particular area, like make sure you nail that before launching, because that is, you know, that's your one chance. I mean, another, you know, do you get as many customers as you possibly can, or do you only get the right customers at the right time? I'm a bit of a contrarian on this as well. I actually think that when you launch a product, you should only get customers that are forgiving at first. And you should wait for those viral customers that will tell everyone about your product until you're ready for people to tell everyone about your product. And by the way, those viral customers won't do that if they don't think your product is perfect, which it never is in the beginning. So, I mean, these are just a few examples of the typical startup knowledge that I take a bit of a contrarian view around. Mm. The polish idea, I, I like that because it is, it's such a crowded market these days and it's and just nobody's going to pay attention to your to your half-baked product these days it's just that's i think that's something that that has changed and will never reverse at this point yeah you talk about the long game versus the short game in this book can the long game and the short game be satisfied simultaneously at a given point in a business or are they incompatible are you always trading off between the long game and the short game? I think it's a great another example of a healthy tension. We're, we would all be fooling ourselves if we didn't believe that the 
you know, the short game didn't matter or did matter. Of course it matters. And in fact, we're all governed by short-term reward systems. And we are all, we all have to see progress to make more progress. And so you kind of have to keep that in mind as you incentivize and reward a team and everything else. That being said, if you have incredible conviction in the end state of what you're trying to make happen, then you should have a high degree of tolerance with some of the slow baked things you're doing that will really distinguish you in the long run. And for me, for Behance, I never wanted it to be a portfolio creator website that just was compared with any other website portfolio creation tool or a place to show your work. I really wanted Behance to be about organizing and empowering creative people. We had to make some decisions to play that long game that short that, that made that made Behance take longer to, to build. Whether it was starting a conference called the 99U, which is now in its 11th year, or building the product in such a way that fostered meritocracy and was a community and all these other elements that were harder to do, but to me, like made us, it was for the long game of what Behance was intended to be, as opposed to a commoditized portfolio management system, of which there are many. So I, I think you have to balance balance the two, but I, you do have to be, there's a there's an art and a science to this. You know, as a, as a leader of a team, you have to be merchandising the near-term wins and the short-term scenarios with your team in order to keep their brains involved because they are human. But also you have to, you know, you have to find what, what long game you need to play and then you have to stick with it. Let's end on a tactical note. What psychological tactics can the listeners who are in the middle of their own creative project that they're struggling through any new tips or tactics about getting through that difficult part? I think it's important. And one of the most common questions I get from entrepreneurs, especially, but anyone on old new projects is, should I quit or should I stick with it? And my answer is always simply this. Your job is to accumulate more conviction in what you're trying to do ultimately in this end state based on the customer feedback, the reuser research, the process of building the product, the process of hiring, the process of talking about to investors, like everything you're doing is either giving you more conviction or lessening your conviction in that end state. So long as you are getting more conviction that this needs to exist, that the world needs this, that it's the right solution, then every other problem you're having you are just in the messy middle and it's par for the course and you've got to stick with it and recognize the competitive advantage of most companies is just sticking together long enough to figure it out. However, if you are getting less conviction as a result of all these things I just mentioned, then you should flip and do something different. You know, you should pivot it. You should quit and try something different. There's no pride in sticking with something simply because you started it. And that's like a truism of that, you know, that's a contrarian view and something we've talked, been taught for our entire lives is like, once you start, you know, don't quit until you finish. Like that's, that's bogus. How could you do that in a world where we're constantly learning the truth as we set out on the journey? So I, I just encourage everyone to do that constant litmus test of, am I getting more or less conviction in the end state and separate that from, oh my gosh, is this hard? Did this product work or do we have to redo it again or any other 
challenge or self-doubt you face along the way. It actually doesn't matter so long as the conviction is still there and, and building. Scott, thanks for a great book. Thank you. And thanks for the podcast. 